are listening to Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. Coming up on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, I am going to be joined by Sam Kaplan as we're going to talk about the new UFC headquarters in Las Vegas. Should managers and coaches be a little concerned? Also, the UFC campaign contribution article that was recently on Bloody Elbow. Anderson Silva and Sam is going to give his top three most irrational requests he's got from fighters, the layoffs at ESPN, how that affects the UFC TV deal, and so much more. Plus, we will get into questions submitted on social media. Sam, how's it going, man? It's going well. I missed the audience. There was a bunch of topics that I had to talk about and express some uh, anger and grief, and I thought this would be the best location the best venue to do it <laughs> of course we are brought to you by fight tv fight is a go-to app for mma fans and practitioners live pay-per-views tv tapings full-length matches interviews movies and documentaries watch mma wrestling and boxing live on the screen of your choice phone tablet or tv using just the fight app download fight free today by going to fight f-i-t-e dot tv forward slash radio influence forward slash once again that is fight f-i-t-e dot tv forward slash radio influence forward slash that link is also available on radioinfluence.com and if you are interested on being an advertiser here on the MMA insiders podcast just shoot me an email jason at radioinfluence.com we'll send you over the rates and we can get you a sponsor here on the mma insiders podcast but uh sam there is so much going on of course uh we, we we chat via Twitter DM all the time, and one of the things that me and you have been going back and forth on is this new UFC headquarters in Las Vegas. And when you start to kind of read what they're doing out there, I can't help but sit there and say, if you're a, I think particularly if you're a coach that's in Las Vegas, I think there should be some concerns. This was the impetus for me to want to do a show with you. I, I saw the CNN video and I direct messaged you right away because I was completely appalled by it. it. It like, look, let's let's get this right out there in the open. The new UFC headquarters is, is gorgeous. I mean, it's absolutely incredible based on the little snippets that I saw just from that CNN video. I could imagine that if I actually went in there and toured, I probably want to stay there and live there for the rest of my life. But it's the prime example of corporate greed and overindulgence and hubris. It's just, they built this monument. And when I say they, that meaning the UFC executives and the owners, they built this monument to themselves. Looking at the limited images that I've seen, my guess is that it wasn't very cheap to build this facility. They probably spent tens of millions of dollars, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars. It looks like something that Google would have for their headquarters. It's completely over the top and I dare say unnecessary, Jason. I don't get it. I don't understand why you put this much money into a corporate headquarters when you have fighters routinely complaining and now complaining publicly ad nauseum about their lack of pay. Why not put this money into the fighters? 
Yeah, especially when you you see the uh, the Twitter interaction between Dana White and Luke Rocco. We'll get into uh, that in, in a little bit. But Sam, when I watched this video, it reminded me. Look, I have been working uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Radio Network, uh, you know, since two thousand four, and it, it reminded me a, a lot of of walking into our our team facility, which uh, opened up back in uh, in two thousand and six. It just reminded me of of NFL teams headquarters where everything is under one roof, where you've got all, all the the rehabilitation and uh, you know the dining, everything that a player or employee would need was all under one roof. That is what when I watched that video because you actually sent it to me. That is what stuck out to me. And then of course you see Francis Njuanu moves to Las Vegas, which I think is a great move for for Francis Njuanu. And you know he hasn't figured out where he's going to train at, but of course he <laughs> takes a picture outside of the UFC Come headquarters, on. and that kind of leads me to think it's like, you know, like let let's say you're a coach at at Syndicate, you, you're uh you know John Wood, or say you're Extreme Couture, you're uh, Robert Fallis, or even Ray Seffo. I think you have to be concerned that is is the UFC getting into the gym business and could they potentially lose clients? If I owned a gym in Las Vegas, I would do either one of two things. I would either sell it or I would completely rebrand and put all of my time and energy into attracting soccer moms and kids. It would be all soccer mom programs and kid programs. I would get out of the pro fighter business because when you have a reputable gym in Vegas, you're in the pro fighter business. You might have some civilian traffic coming in doing classes, but there's enough pro fighters per capita in Las Vegas that can populate the gyms out there. It's a little different than where you might see some other gyms in other locales and other regions of the country that cannot survive on pro fighters alone. The Vegas gyms, it's a little different, but you know, as a matchmaker, when I was matchmaking for Bellator, I would talk to fighters and they would, you know, constantly want to renegotiate their contracts. They would always try to get more money from from us. They would complain about, you know, the cost of their training camps, the cost of their meals, the cost of their supplements. And I really didn't know what to tell them. I did not really know what to tell them at all. I had really nothing to offer them. But if you're a matchmaker for the UFC or anyone involved in talent relations and you're hearing those complaints and those rebuttals during negotiations or just, you know, random day to day chatter, you now have an amazing rebuttal. Hey, buddy, just move to Vegas. Come out here. Your training will be free. If you're injured, all your medical care here will be free. You know, and Jason, I've got to think the the, the food might be free. I, I you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I know with a lot of pro sports teams, the dining halls, the the athletes don't pay for that. You know, th- these guys are making millions of dollars, and then they don't even pay for their meals. And these and a lot of these team facilities, they have chefs, like high level right. chefs, cooking these meals. So they're getting three meals a day. I know with the Sixers' new facility, not only did they hire a chef who does you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the athletes they get take home meals. You just, you know, you go up, you know, you get, you, you, you're about to leave the facility after training about three or 4 PM, you eat your dinner, but then you go to the chef and you say, Hey, can you make me this so I can take it home? Well, and I they think, make it. And I think also a part of that is also making sure that your athletes are, are putting the correct foods in their body. They're not going through a, a fast food drive through and getting a hamburger and fries and a milkshake. You want to make sure that they're putting the right n- nutrition in their body. I mean, that goes alongside of it. I mean, they just, 
I, I've talked to a lot of fighters, you know, over the you know last year who, who just talked about how nutrition is just is at a different level. I mean, here's a perfect example: Douglas Lima. He has told me about you know he he doesn't walk around as big as he used to, and that's because he has started working with perfecting athletes, and they're uh, you know taking his nutrition to another level. And, and I remember I asked him, I said, I "Go so name me something you're eating now that." you know, before you got involved with them that you weren't eating. And he said kale, which ironically, I started eating kale not a little before that. I actually enjoy it. Well, kale's pretty good, and it's way more nutritious than lettuce. Lettuce doesn't really offer much nutritional value. Kale has a lot of nutritional value. So that's a that's a good move for him. I'm surprised he hadn't made that uh, that move sooner. That's something that many pro fighters uh, partake in, and that that being the kale. But I, he, I, Kale juice. Have you ever tried kale? Put, uh, put a kale. If you make juice uh, with a blender, throw some I, kale in there. Oh, I'll have to try that out. Now, the other side of this is I think if you're a manager, I think there has to be some concern because at the end of the day, some concern, what is the <laughs> UFC on, owners? Geez. They're a management company, right? Uh, you know, they, they manage Ronda Rousey. They manage Chris Weidman, or I, I think they did at one point. I don't know if they still have Weidman. Uh, I've heard that he's with, uh, he's with paradigm. I, I can't keep up. Yeah, he's he's with Paradigm. Of course, it was uh, finally revealed this past weekend. Yuani and Jacek, she was she is with Paradigm, which uh, is something I heard. Oh man, two months ago, yeah, I want to say yeah, when when yeah. she uh, she had a falling out with uh, Tiago, which ironically Tiago now manages Jessica Andrade, which that could I could only imagine the uh, the fake smiles that were uh, that <laughs> happened last weekend in Dallas and. Uh, I mean, look, first off, on the management side, that's a huge loss for Sucker Punch. Well, it's a huge loss for Sucker Punch, but let's look at the broader picture. If you're a manager, you have a management company, and you've built your business model around managing UFC fighters, I don't, you know, maybe some people are saying I'm overreacting by telling people in Vegas to sell their gyms, but I'm telling managers, too, they they should sell their management firms because... If the UFC decides to, if they get in disputes with managers, they get in, and or fighters aren't happy and they start complaining about, you know, why am I paying for commissions to my trainers? Why am I paying commissions to my managers? I'm paying so much for supplements. I'm paying so much for nutritional help. I'm paying x x x this x amount and y this. So just come out to Vegas. That that's really, I mean, the UFC can hold that over everyone's heads. And I don't know if they've come out and said that everyone in the UFC will be have the ability to come out there and train for free. But the people that I've spoken to, they said it's for everyone. Anyone that wants to come out there and take advantage of the resources will be allowed to. So at that point, say you pack up and leave and you move to Vegas and you're in the UFC headquarters every single day as a professional fighter. Why at that point do you still have a manager? I think there's I think there's people that might point out why do you have a you know what what's what ultimately is your manager bringing to the table is he the guy that's just you know you know negotiating your contract if that's the only thing he's really doing for you then why not just hire a lawyer and pay him an hourly rate to negotiate your 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 fight contract and your bout agreements and WME IMG even if they decide not to get into the management business. They're kind of they have their little toe in into in, the shallow end of the water right now with Ronda Rousey, but they really haven't gone out and opened up a big stable of MMA fighters. Let's say they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to take on the p- potential liability. There has been talks for years that the UFC 
did not believe in fighter management. They felt that it was a way to drive up costs and they wanted to eliminate it. They wanted to separate the fighters from their management. So even if WME IMG doesn't want to manage the fighters themselves, the fighters becoming independent and not having representation, that's still of benefit to them. And it just creates this huge conundrum for professional fight managers because you cannot compete with what the resources that the UFC are about to offer. You know, I don't know if the meals necessarily will be free, but if it follows suit the way things go, uh, the way how things go in professional sports, you know, and with the major sports leagues, you've got to think that they're going to be able to eat for free too. I mean, so they're not going to have to pay for meals, not pay for training, not pay for medical care. You know, if you're a fighter, the only reason why you wouldn't move to Vegas is if you have a family in another city and you don't want to uproot your family. Otherwise, if you're a young male or female and you don't have a significant other that you're married to or have children with, there's no reason not to go out to Vegas. Because any time now from this point forward, if a fighter starts complaining about cost, Dana White publicly can just come back. We've spent tens of millions of dollars opening this facility for the professional fighters. Some of them decided not to take advantage of it. There's nothing we can do. That We knew that this was a concern, training cost, medical cost, and this was our way of addressing it. We can't, move the, we can't make the fighter move out here. This is where it is, but they're more than welcome to come out and take advantage of it. Well, I know part of this, uh, when they were you know, building this, was part of it's about the, the rehabilitation center, which I, I guess the question's got to be is, if you're a fighter, do you, want, do you want everyone in the UFC to know exactly what's going on with you medically? And do you trust the UFC doctors? That is a, another common theme in pro sports with the pro teams, you know, it's NFL, major league baseball, hockey and baseball, you know, do the athletes trust the team doctors? Cause the team doctors are paid by the teams themselves. The teams have a vested interest in the athletes, you know, nine out of 10 times staying on the field and playing no matter what, because if they're not on the field, they still get paid millions upon millions of dollars. So as a UFC fighter, if you're training out of their facility and getting medical care, yes, you're going to have access to state-of-the-art medical equipment and medical testing and, and so forth and, and, and whatnot. But when it comes down to actually getting a, prognos- a prognosis, a diagnosis, a recovery timetable, are you going to completely trust a doctor that is compensated by the UFC? That's a that's a big question mark, and I don't know how many fighters would, you know. And uh, but I guess the other part of this has got to be is, uh, you know, if if this is free medical care, if maybe you don't have insurance, does that play into it? I mean, I, I you know, free medical care is better than no medical care. Yeah, you know, and anyone who who had to go to a doctor, you know, it's not cheap these days. It's really expensive. It is, and you've got to think that it's there. The doctors there would be willing to treat athletes not just for sports injuries, but if they have the flu, you know, just pop into the doctor and say, hey, can you give me, uh, you know, give me something to help me get through my camp? And the doctors will be able to. Well, I think the other side of this is, you know, they've hired a a strength and conditioning coach that's going to work there. So I think that's another aspect if you are a, a Las Vegas gym where you're like, man, all of a sudden, you know, I'm a strength and conditioning coach and am I going to lose my clients? And it's uh, it's got to be an uneasy feeling for some of those coaches right now in Las Vegas. I mean, and maybe they're trying to sit there. Maybe they're trying to get a job with the UFC to protect themselves. That's That would be my advice. Try to work for them. Because if the fighters try to enlist in mass and sign up and join the UFC training facility and move out to Vegas, 
at a certain point, there's going to be redundancy. You can't have necessarily the sit one strength and conditioning coach training 50 guys that are all in a position to potentially fight each other. You're going to need to possibly bring in additional trainers, additional strength and conditioning coaches, and maybe kind of have factions within the same UFC headquarters so that, you know, if a guy isn't comfortable training with someone that they, they're going to have to fight potentially, you know, there, there is a, there's at least some kind of barrier there right now that, that, you know, besides having to possibly uproot your family, I could think that the only other downside to moving out there is that everyone could be lumped into one big group. And some fighters, they're just not comfortable with that. They're not comfortable with training with guys that they know there's a high likelihood that they're going to have to be matched up with. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've seen that happen, uh, Happens so often uh, in terms of it. You know, another thing, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, the changing of the UFC. And, you know, Bellator's been doing something recently that I think has gone pretty quiet. When you, when you talk about the big free agents that have come over, one of the things you're hearing is they're not being brought over in a, hey, here's your show purse, here's your win purse. They're getting a flat fee. And I, I have to wonder, if you're the UFC, if you had that type of system – you're not dealing with the Dustin Poirier situation at this time. You're not. And maybe that's what they'll do for younger fighters that move out there. That is definitely something that they could explore. But a big concern that I have about this outside of the potential gym and manager system that we know completely being eradicated is I feel that one of the biggest issues with the UFC right now is that it's too homogenized and a lot of these newer fighters, they're coming off too generic. The UFC, to me, is a very bland, generic product. There's not a lot of identifiable characters. Fighters have not gone out and been able to brand themselves as individuals. There's not a lot of individualism right now. And I think the Reebok deal is a big part of that. And I think this headquarters, this training facility, could also bland it down even more. It could really hurt the sport. And the, the concern being that if fighters go in mass and you've, you're talking about hundreds of fighters out there training together, training with the same strength and conditioning coaches, training with the sta- same striking coaches, the same wrestling coaches, all the same technique coaches, they're not only going to look the same, but they're going to fight the same. If this UFC headquarters if this blows up, this training uh, facility that they have, if it really takes over and blows up, are we going to see the Stephen Thompsons, the Kung Lees, the Michael Pages, the fighters with the very unique fighting style? Will we st- cease to see them? And will everyone just look like a look and fight like a general mixed martial artist? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Michael Page. Uh, of course, he pulled out of his fight that was scheduled for Friday night. Uh, in London, only two fights left on his current Bellator contract. I think he would be the guy the UFC would shell out a ton of money for, and I don't know if Bellator would match it. I don't know if the UFC is going to do that. I, I just he's I, not. He does not have. You look at some of the recent fighters that have left Bellator, like Will Brooks and Marcin Held. They've not been overly successful in the octagon. Michael Page has not fought elite level competition. Do you pay big money for a guy who, if he gets taken down, may not be able to do anything? I mean, if they match Michael Page up a certain way, he could potentially start his career 0-2 there. If they put him against high-level wrestlers right out of the gate, 
He's going to go 0-2? Yeah, I, I think it'd be more of the WME angle because he's got that, that personality, which kind of leads into you know something I wanted to bring up here on, on this week's uh, episode of the podcast was, does the UFC actually know how to promote a fight and fighters when they actually like each other? No. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, uh, two eleven doesn't take me long to, to answer that one. Yeah, two eleven. I think it is a prime example of this. When it, that fight card, top to bottom, was I would classify as a hardcore fight fans' dream. Had great matchups, pay per view, television prelims, and also uh, on the fight pass prelims. But it had no buzz around it. it. And I just I look at that fight card and it's like. I watch those embedded episodes with Stipe Miocic, and I go, how are you not figuring out a way to sell this guy? This guy has got this great personality. Is it because he's he doesn't have that Conor McGregor talking trash and all that situation that they just don't know how to promote a guy who's just nice? It, it just – I don't know how to answer that. I – there's so many fighters under contract right now to the UFC that I feel have been completely overlooked that have not been pushed or promoted at all. And it's really starting to affect the UFC because their pay-per-view numbers this year from everyone that I've spoken to that have access to pay-per-view numbers, they've told me that their numbers are down dramatically this yeah. year in comparison to last year. And part of that is Ronda's no longer you know, an active competitor in the UFC, Conor McGregor, you know, is yet to fight this year and who knows if he's going to fight this year, but you can't sit back and wait for a Ronda Rousey comeback. You can't sit around and wait for Connor to come back and get past this Floyd Mayweather thing. You've got to focus on creating new stars and building new stars up. And I don't feel that sense of urgency. Maybe that sense of urgency exists behind the scenes. If I was to walk through the UFC corporate offices, maybe I would, you know, be subjected to meetings with, you know, marketing people and, 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 you know, all kinds of things like that. But I don't, you know, from an external perspective, I don't feel the urgency. I don't see the push for a lot of these guys. I mean, you look, and I guess I'm, one of the questions that we were going to have regarding Fr Frankie Edgar, I guess I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but look what they did to Yair Re Rodriguez. I, you know, that I don't. I, I, you know, Sean Shelby came out, and, and the question, uh, this comes from at, at WWE Big Show Fan 6, asked where you talk about what Frankie Edgar did, maybe the best MMA performance of all time, just unbelievable. And, you know, it was about a, a week before this fight card. They, uh, the UFC puts out this video. It's with John Anik, and it's with the matchmaker Sean Shelby and now McMaynard. And, you know, they started talking about this Edgar and, and Yair Rodriguez matchup, which I thought was probably one of the most, to me, it was my number one fight of the week and the fight that I was most interested in. And, you know, it, it was uh, it was a huge step up in competition for Yair Rodriguez. And Sean Shelby said that this is the matchup Yair Rodriguez wanted. Now, that's all great and everything. I can't believe the UFC gave him what he wanted. Right, because someone, you know, made a real good point, And I think this was on Twitter or maybe the UG forums. There's really very little for Yair Rod Rodriguez to gain by beating Frankie Edgar because the perception is from a lot of people right now that Frankie Edgar isn't at the top of his game, that maybe he's on the downside of his career. Now, he's showing that that's not really the case, but the perception in the eyes of many were there. Frankie Edgar was not a title contender. You throw him in there, you throw Yair Rodriguez in there against 
a guy in Frankie Edgar who can still fight with the best of them, even though he may not have the 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 respect that he should be getting right about now. And he completely derailed any momentum that Yair Rodriguez had. You know, you look at the, you know the, the the phrase that we've used in MMA as promoters and matchmakers is killing the golden goose. And the UFC has several golden gooses. They've had several, but they've got CM. They've gotten CM Punk beat. And granted, there's only so much they could do with CM Punk, but to get him beat that quick, why not try to put him in a position where he get can get two to three wins in a row before you kill him off? Paige Van Zant, they got her beat. They got Sage Northcutt beat. And now they got Yair Rodriguez. It seems like anyone that gets some momentum in the UFC that has that it factor that could potentially be groomed and grown into another Con- Conor McGregor or maybe a-, a notch below at the very least – they kill those guys off, and it's just there's just so many fighters, and there's so much parity that it it feels like you take two steps forward in the UFC, but then you're going to take two steps back and end up right back to where you were. There are so many guys recently that have been cut that when they were signed, that you know you know the hardcore fans were very excited and said, "Oh, this guy is going to be the, the the next you know big star," and you know they win a couple fights. And everyone, you know, is getting on that bandwagon, but then they lose two or three and they're cut. And suddenly they're they're They go from prospect to over the hill has been overnight, seemingly within the span of a year. How does that happen? It just the UFC has never been in a position where they really had to focus on developing talent. And now that there's been a change in ownership where there's a, a more of a need to develop talent more so than ever before, they just don't know how to do it. They, they know how to make competitive fights and you know put on big shows but they don't know how to take a fighter a prospect from a to z and develop them into a star you could say well what about conor mcgregor well what about him i think he did a lot of that on his own same thing with ronda rousey ronda rousey was fighting and making a name for herself in strike force before she ever got to the ufc i i think a, a potential fighter that may fit and i think that i think there is a likelihood that he is fighting Stipe Miocic next, and that's Francis Ngannou. And I mean, look, the, the guy has has all the makings of a of a future UFC champion, but there may be a little bit of, of a rush here to get him into a title fight. Why do that? Why do that? Because if he loses, you potentially kill him off. I, if he wins, he beats Miocic. But you have two guys. Why not build that fight? Build it up. Spend a year building that fight up. I think the problem is at heavyweight right now, if Cain Velasquez was 100% ready to go, Cain Velasquez has the next title matchup. However, Cain's not 100%. He is in the gym, but he's nowhere at this point, my understanding, of getting into a training camp for a fight. So that pretty much eliminates him. You could throw Derek Lewis potentially, but what if... That's that's what I would do. You know, but he's got the fight against Mark Hunt coming up uh, here in, in a couple weeks down in New Zealand. So he, he's got to get through that fight. Uh, you've got France and Juanu. Um, you've got Verdum and Overeem fighting each other. But, I mean, look, both of them, you know, within the last year have lost to Stipe Miocic. And my understanding of the situation is uh, the UFC is not exactly uh, – very uh, thrilled with Rusio Verdum, and this kind of goes back to December of last year when JDS came was willing to come off the couch and and fight uh, Verdum <laughs> as a, a short notice replacement. And Verdum's like, "No, I'm good. I'm going to wait for my title matchup." And so that's kind of why he's got this Overeem fight here. 
Um, so there's just not a lot of options there for the UFC. And I mean, I know Kevin Ioli had a piece uh, about a potential Stipe and, and Francis fight. I mean, I think I, you know, to me, if you're going to do that, let Francis fight in a number one type contender fight before. I mean, you're talking about his best wins, right. Andre Arlovsky. Have they ever fought on the same card? Stipe uh, and Francis? I don't think so. Why would you why would you not do that? Put Stipe in the main event, put Francis in the co-main event. Why wouldn't you do that before you make that fight between them? Put yeah. them under the same spotlight, have that face off, and you've got that magic moment, that that you know, million dollar B-roll that you can just push. They're just you know, I mean, it goes back to your point. They don't know how to it seems like the UFC's forgotten how to promote fights. Yeah, I mean, in kind of relation to this, we got a question uh, that was saying, what are our thoughts on the marketing of the UFC since the new regime took over? Do you feel like there's been a difference of the quality of imagery and video production and social media posts? How much the quality of those elements contribute to the success or failure of promotions both internationally, nationally, and regionally? I'll tell you a little funny story, Sam. Now, they have gone through a change in their social media department. So the last two pay-per-views, I've actually gotten a DM from the UFC. <laughs> I get those too, yeah. Which I don't follow the UFC, first off. So I'm like, how, how the hell do they DM me? <laughs> because if that would make it a lot, of, if I could DM people that don't follow me, that might make my job a little easier in terms of, hey, can I get your number so we can talk about something? Yeah. Um, but I, I just like laugh about it because I'm like, I am should not be the person you're targeting to buy your pay-per-view. Because I'm watching them regardless. I'm going over to the boys' house, and we're going to have a good time. You know, we're going to partake in some beverages. We're, we're going to throw some friendly wagers down. But uh, I'm not that. Per- I'm like, I'm like, every time I get that, get that DM, I'm like, do they just not follow me? And usually, like, it's a DM after like I post my preview podcast. If I'm doing a preview podcast about your pay review, I'm watching the pay review. I'm not. Yep. The per- I'm not the person you should be marketing to. <laughs> I think when it comes to their marketing, you know, some of it's improved on certain levels, but then some of it's taken a step back. And I've spoken to people that, you know, know what's going on in the UFC offices. And when they made their their layoffs, they didn't just cut, you know, the middle management types and in, in, in some of the executives. They, they cut back some of their, you know, creative departments. Mm-hmm. And you you'll see certain ads that just aren't up to the standard – as to what they're tip, what, as to what they typically are, and I, some of it looks like laziness. And I made that comment to someone, and they said, "Look, the, they don't have as much help and manpower as they've had in the past, and they're doing more shows than ever. So there's a constant churn. Once they finish something, they have to go right back in and start getting the creative ready for the next show, and they don't have enough people." To accommodate that, so when it comes to some of the smaller shows, they're taking a step back and saving, you know, their energy for the bigger shows. And before, I think, you know, before the Fertitta sold and before there were these layoffs, they had enough resources to kind of spread themselves out a little bit and, you know, make every put it maximum effort into every single card, whether it was big or small. And we're, you're not seeing some of that. And people have pointed out some of the B-roll choices, some of the musical selections, and that's because they just don't have enough time. So I, I think it's a, it's a huge concern. If you're not going to have your company properly staffed to support the amount of shows that you're running, then cut back the amount of shows. Well, first off, uh, one of the things people have pointed to is the posters that have been done. Have you seen the UFC 212 poster? 
I have not. Okay, I, I, I'm going to send it here in, in our little messenger here. I just want to get your reaction uh, when you see it as I'm uh, trying to okay. uh, pull it up here uh, to be able to send it to you. That I think when you see this poster, you are just going to go, what the hell is that thing? Um, so I'm sending it to you right now, Sam. So, uh, you know, let me know what, uh, what you think about that poster. Let me see here. And there's been a long pause. I'm sure Jason can edit that out when it, it when we, uh, go to post, but there, or you can leave it in and, you know, but, uh, let me see here. Now I'll tell when you react to it, I'm going to tell you, I wish, I wish we had the uh, a camera on so you could see my face. It's like. My face is sideways. Like it just. Uh, I will tell you this. Okay, so I do bar marketing. Uh, it's one of my freelance jobs. Wait a bit. So Max Holloway is, is upside is, down. Yes. Okay, so I'm not drunk. No, you're not drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm not high. He's really upside down. Yeah, he's really upside down. Which I, I by the way, I thought it was just great that Brian Butler, his manager. Uh, ended up basically flipping the poster around, putting it on his Instagram, which I thought was great. <laughs> but the, for me, uh, you know, I, I do freelancer bar marketing. When I saw this poster, my first thought was, this, I, I didn't think it was a poster. I thought it was one of these things when you go out to a bar or restaurant that's folded up, you know, like a tent type style, you know, and that's sitting on the table. I didn't think it was a poster. And when I saw it, I was like, you have to be kidding. This cannot be the real poster. And but it you, is. How do you expect to turn Max Holloway into a big breakout star when you can't even read his last name unless you're dyslexic or well, I guess. No, not dyslexic. That would be backwards. It would be what's the uh, there's got to be some kind of a disease when you see upside down because you, you, you can't really see his face. You can't make out his name how does the ufc expect to build new stars with marketing like this i and and this is a line of just terrible ufc posters you go back to, to ufc 210 the way that was 209 i mean they've pretty much all of them have been just god awful um you know since they you know and it's just it's one of these things of like i look at these posters and i go who is buying these and the poster itself you know isn't completely bad i mean the, the pictures are great they're high resolution you, you know those are great action shots you know there there is some you know skill that went into certain aspects of this poster but when you get to the overall creative direction the vision for it putting your interim champion who could be the next big breakout star under your banner making him completely unrecognizable to the general public not a good idea well, I mean, look, if you are a sports bar or a restaurant that is having the UFC 212 pay-per-view and, and what happens is Johan sends you these posters for you to hang up, I would not hang this up in my bar. Or I would cut it in half and put them right next to each other. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it's just it's so bad. Like I think and, what, I and guess I, the concept. Are they going for like a playing card like, you know, the king and queen where, you know, because you've got. The, the two ladies, they got, you got the ladies fight up in the corner. That's the same fight, right? In the, in the upper right and the Correct. lower left. Yes. I, I guess, I don't know. No, I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Jason. Yeah, I mean, look, social media is a big part of how you market. That's, I mean, in, in just in anything in business in 2017, social media has to be a big part of your marketing plan. And, um, you know, they made changes in, in their social media department. And I don't know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if it was a correct decision that was made, 
Um, but I, I, I think it, it's a big part of not just for an organization like the UFC, but it's a huge part for whether it's a, you know, a, a regional show or a national show. You have to be able to utilize social media to get word out about your event. You just can't count on media reporting about your event or fighters promoting their event because especially if you're a local show and you're not offering fighters a commission on the ticket sales, what, what incentive do they have to go out there and, and go beyond what they normally would do to promote their own fight? What this poster says to me, Jason, it says that Dana White is more of a figurehead than anything else, that he is not as directly involved in the product as he had been in the past because in the past, under the Fertitas, he micromanaged everything from what I was told, from the fighters' walkout music to, you know, interviews that they did. I mean, nothing really got past him. And what this says to me is that there's someone that's been named creative head of marketing who has total autonomy, who signs off on this, and it just goes out. Dana White is no longer looking at this because if he was involved as he had been in the past, he would have been presented this and taken a big crap all over it and said, no way. I'm sending it back. You have to redo it. You know, you know, having worked with Bjorn Rebney for as long as I did, he was a micromanager the same way. Something like this would never get, have gotten past him because as a promoter, creative elements, you always want to monitor that and maintain a high level of creative control because it's an extension of the promoter. It's how you create stars. And as a promoter, you don't want someone like Max Holloway appearing upside down. You just don't. It's, it's, it's stupid. I mean, and, and Holloway Aldo is a great fight. You know, right. I mean, it, it's it's more of a fight for the hardcore fan. It, it's not going to sell on pay-per-view because, A, Jose Aldo doesn't sell on pay-per-view unless Conor McGregor's, you know, sharing the octagon with him. Um, you know, it, it's it, that's a great fight, but it's probably 200,000 buys, yep. which is pretty much what any UFC pay-per-view is going to do. It's just because that is the UFC market. And, I mean, you look at, you know, the the – press conference they had in Dallas last Friday uh you know obviously uh, Kevin Lee and Michael Chiesa got people a lot more interested in their fight which is going to be an FS1 fight uh at the end of June and obviously you know Cormier and Jones I mean that's going to be you know that will be the biggest pay-per-view of 2017 for the UFC because I truly do not believe we will see Conor McGregor inside the UFC octagon 2017. I, I don't know what's going on with this Floyd Mayweather thing. I mean, look, if that and, fight, and he's just, it, and he's just sit, he's sitting out. The UFC is losing so much money. Dana White either needs to make the fight happen or kill it. This oh, state yeah. of purgatory, this in between stage, this state of purgatory, they're not helping themselves at all. Come two thousand, you know, when the the two thousand seventeen pay per view total. If McGregor does not fight when, you know, we look back at it, you know, in the uh, at the start of 2018 come January, this could be a really bad year pay-per-view wise for the UFC, a total disaster. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about in 2016, you had three McGregor fights and you had one Ronda Rousey fight. So it, it was a great year. And, um, you know, I saw someone mention this the other day where they said, will there be any UFC pay-per-view that can match what Canelo did in a tune-up fight? against uh you know Chavez <laughs> oh, Jr. and the answer is no but but this is where and I know uh, front row Brian has mentioned this on social media multiple times and he is 1000% correct and this is where I think Oscar Del Hoya screwed up a little bit when he you know was this rush to say we're fighting September 16th if Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor say we're fighting September 16th 
Sorry, Canelo GGG. The pay-per-view companies aren't picking you up because yeah. they're only going to one run one pay-per-view, and they're going to pick up you know McGregor and Mayweather because that's a pay-per-view that Sam I think at the worst case scenario three and a half million buys. Yeah, because I think it not only transcends boxing, not only transcends MMA, it goes into the public mainstream. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a huge curiosity factor. People that have never bought an MMA pay-per-view, that have never bought a boxing pay-per-view, are suddenly going to have an interest in this. And that, and, and for a local business, and this is just a, a warning to if you're listening to this podcast, I would say it is highly unlikely that any place that shows this fight will not have a cover. Everyone's going to have a cover because... My guess is for a place that sits 200 people, $4,000 at least. Right, because if you're at home, this is going to be a $100 pay-per-view. Oh, if not more. Would it, would it shock you if it went more than $100? No, it wouldn't. I, they, they can just bank on the fact that people are going to watch this in a group setting anyway and try to maximize and optimize the amount of money they could get from this. Oh, that's what I mean. For every pay-per-view, I, it's it's me and two of my buddies. We always watch it, and, and we, we were we were talking about this the other day. Uh, and we were saying is like we're gonna get you know phone calls where you know where it's just usually the three of us watching the fights. It'll probably be a room of like fifteen people because they're yeah, gonna want people it, gonna have parties. Yeah, people yeah, gonna have parties built around this. It's it gonna be a, a casual sports event. But I, I mean, if that fight happens in September, October, or whatever, I, I don't I don't see a way where we see Conor McGregor in twenty seventeen and, and and you know when WME bought this company, they they weren't counting on not having McGregor in twenty seventeen. I bet what they were counting on was at least three pay-per-view fights from him. I, here, here's a question I've, I've asked people. We we all, you know, when it comes to active fighters in the UFC, and, and right now you can't include Ron in that. You can't include Connor in that, honestly. Who, you know, Cormier Jones is no question the fight they have. I guess you say Nate Diaz would be the next biggest pay-per-view star, but we don't know what Nate can draw on pay-per-view when he's not sharing the octagon with Conor McGregor. Correct. But when Dana White basically comes out and says Nate's not a pay-per-view guy, I'm like, hold on. You had Jermaine Day, Ramonda May headline a fight card on pay-per-view. <laughs> so so you, like, you can't go with that excuse. Yeah. I mean, I, you're looking at UFC 213, you know, International Fight Week. It's going to be headlined most likely by Amanda Nunez and Valentina Shevchenko. That's not selling pay-per-view, folks. It's a great fight. That's not selling pay-per-views. They were counting on TJ Dillashaw, Cody Garbrandt headline that card. And now with Cody looking like he's out of it, not good. Yeah. I mean, that's why I say, like, when I talk to my casual sports fans and they're like, tell me the fight I need to get interested for. And I'm like, Cormier Jones? That's the only fight that's going to get fans excited. And I think that there's no guarantee that goes down. Oh, yeah, there's no guarantee. But I think that's also the UFC has to look at themselves in the mirror and say, what are we doing wrong where we're not creating stars? Not an easy question to answer. No, it's definitely uh, not an easy question to answer. Uh, You know, in in terms of, you know, kind of that that star making kind of leads into, uh, you know, recently ESPN had their layoffs, um, which let's just call it it's. It's kind of it's kind of twofold. It's core cutters, and um, it was interesting that uh, in the recent Disney uh, stockholders conference call, they basically allude to the fact of the NBA TV deal, how much that's hurt uh, ESPN. But what ultimately what this means for the next UFC TV deal? But Sam, I, I was listening to uh, the Tomahawk Nation podcast, which is a Florida State Seminoles football podcast, and they were talking about the ESPN layoffs recently, and they brought up a very interesting point and. I had never thought of this point. You know, we always talk about cut quarters, pe- people who have cut the cord, who've had cable or had satellite. 
But you know the people we never talk about, Sam? People that never will have cable. That you know that that person that like is under twenty five years old. The only time they've had cable or satellite is their parents had it. Maybe they went off to college and they were still using their parents' login information to watch stuff online. But all of a sudden, when they have to make that decision of whether they want to have cable or satellite, they're most likely choosing Netflix, Hulu, maybe even Sling to where they've actually, they're not cutting the cord. They've never had the cord. And that to me is where... These cable companies, if they don't realize this, you know, everyone points to all the the loss subscribers that ESPN has had. Spike's losing a lot as well. And so is FS1. Everyone's losing them, you know, and but ESPN has no one to blame but itself. They invested too much into these major live broadcast deals with the major sports leagues had to drive their prices up so far that, you know, eventually the end cable subscriber got fed up and said, I'm not paying for this anymore. And they, they've lost the number of subscriptions and then just the overall creative direction of their product. Sports center to me has not been relevant in years. And back, you know, in, in high school when I was playing, you know, basketball, I mean, we all watched yeah. sports center. Everyone talked about what they saw on sports center. You know, you woke, you went, you woke up in the morning, you watched sports center before you went to bed at night, you watched sports center, but now it's such a weird product. It's, it's some of it's not even, it's like, it's called sports center, but it's not really sports center. And then just from an editorial perspective, you know, I, I don't get why they, when they cover MMA, they only cover the UFC and why they even bother covering WWE. I'm not saying WWE is not a great product and it doesn't deserve to be covered, but it doesn't belong on Sports Center. You know, these puff pieces, these PR pieces, they're not the, the, the to me, what Sports Center has become in many instances. You know, if they have a deal with the WWE, and I could be wrong, Jason, but I got to believe with the way the WWE gets covered by ESPN now, the WWE is paying for that oh, coverage. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I, I, man, I would bet a lot of money that, that they're putting money into the pockets of SportsCenter and, and ESPN. And why no one in the, in the media has really kind of raised that eyebrow or asked that question? Maybe someone has, and I just haven't seen it. I, I but, think that, that question has been raised, you know, about the, the coverage that they, they've uh, received. And, well, but then Sports Center wonder, wonders why, you know, the ESPN executives wonder why Sports Center isn't relevant anymore. And it's because of journalistic decisions like that. It, 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 it's just, it's horrible. And, you know, the way hockey's been treated because the because ESPN doesn't have a piece of it, you, you can't expect to run a credible news product when you only cover sports that you have a piece of. Yeah, no, it's there. There's a lot of issues. I mean, pretty much the day, you know, you know, if you want to watch highlights of your favorite team, I mean, the only highlight show I can truly think of is on MLB Network Quick Pitch, which is a 30 minute show that that runs down the highlights of all the baseball from the day before. But the, the days of the highlights, and I think ESPN probably hasn't really figured out how to use their their mobile app to you know with with advertising to truly bring in that revenue. But yeah, these these play by play rights are, are killing them. And it was it was funny. I was having a I was having dinner with my family on Sunday. And uh, they were asking about radio influence, what, what we got going on. I was talking about it. We ended up talk, talking about core cutting. And, I, you know, we were talking about how the way people, you know, get video now as opposed to even two or three years ago is totally different. And, and I said, I go, the only reason I have satellite is live sports events. 
there is no other reason why I have satellite because everything else you can get through Netflix, Hulu, or even online in some capacity. You know, I mean, you, you think about the 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 shows that are on NBC, CBS, Fox. All those are available online. You, you don't you have to have a subscription to watch those. Or even you know the the live app on YouTube, the live channel. You would be surprised, Jason, what comes up on that live feed on the YouTube app. It's it, it, it's crazy. Well, and, and now they're they're getting involved in the streaming business. Well, yeah, the the uh, NFL Thursday night package. Who who got? Uh, I think it's going away from Twitter, and I guess it's going to Amazon. You know, it's just it's amazing the way things have changed. The cable companies have been slow to to adapt, but a weak ESPN is bad for WME IMG. It's this is very bad. And full disclosure regarding my critical comments of ESPN, I had a relative that was you know affected by the layoffs, but. Trust me, everybody. I felt this way even before I heard that news. Maybe I'm being a little more forthcoming with that information now that I don't have to worry about, you know, getting, you know, a relative of mine in, in, in any kind of hot water. But back to I digress back to my point about a, a weakening UF, uh, weakening ESPN hurting WME dash IMG, because when they paid the four billion plus for the UFC, the big selling point that they made to their investors, and you can look at the investor sheets that they sent out to prospective investors, was the pending renegotiation. <laughs> Pardon me. I'm, my voice is getting dry here. Uh, the renegotiation of their next TV con- – well, not the renegotiation. The negotiation of their next TV contract in 2019, and the speculation was that they were going to get a monster amount of money for that new deal – it's going to be hard to get to that 300 to 400 million plateau if you only have one suitor. And, you know, for a while there was a rumor that Turner Sports was going to get involved in the bidding when the UFC contract came up. I've spoken to people that said that is likely a leak, that Turner Sports really isn't interested in going after the UFC. So, <coughs> pardon me. Oh, man. As I take a drink of water, I do so much talking now. It's uh, It's crazy, but... If you only have ESPN and and Fox, maybe you could get them into a bidding war and milk a really good deal out of that bidding war. But if you if ESPN decides to pull back on live rights deals and they decide not to go after the UFC, WME IMG, if they only have one suitor for this next round of TV talks for their new TV contract for the UFC, they are in massive trouble. If they come away with only 150 to 200 million, they may have to look to sell, Jason. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, for FS1, they need the UFC. Just when you, when you look at, at where they are currently with their network, um, you know, it's it's them and NASCAR essentially. Yes, they have they have some baseball games, but the problem with and look, I'm a baseball fan, but the problem with baseball when you look at television ratings is it skews to a an average age that advertisers don't necessarily love. You know, um, I believe MLB, uh, I think last year on FS1, the average age was 50, 55 years old. That's not the ideal demographic that advertisers are, are looking for. You know, they're looking for that 18 to 49 demographic. That's that, that's the key demographic. Uh, but I, I don't think ESPN will be a player for the UFC. I, I just I think that when you look at what's going on, they just announced their, their kind of restructuring of ESPN, ESPN2 in, in terms of programming in 2018, which... They're putting everything on ESPN Live, and pretty much everything on ESPN Two is is a re-air. So I don't know exactly how how well that's gonna 
going to work out for them. But it, it's it's right now sports coverage. It's a tough market to be in because. A, you, you better know how to do multiple things. I mean, if, if someone's listening to this and they're in college and they, and they want to be a reporter, if if you want to go on radio, you better learn how to do everything. You better know how to run that board. You, you better know how to fix the equipment, everything. If you're in television, you better know how to shoot it, edit it, you know, put it all together because that is, that's the people that ultimately stay with the job is because they're, they're so valuable to a company. Um, and, and there's a lot of quality journalists who, who are now sitting on the sidelines. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of those journalists come into podcasting because, you know, podcasting is where everyone's heading to. It's good for you and, and, and the network for, for sure. Oh, oh, obviously. Look, it's you know, I mean, look, podcasting is a is a developing market, you know, in, in terms of I mean, look, we you know, I, you know, myself and Jerry P. Tuck, you know, you know, took over Radio Influence, you know, almost two years ago. And the things uh, where the where the industry was two years ago to now, it's completely different. Um, well, in, in, in life, if those opportunities aren't there for you and in sports journalism, there aren't always those opportunities out there. You have a lot of people all going after the same piece of the pie. Sometimes you have to create your own opportunities and podcasting is a great way to do that. Well, and podcasting is a way to kind of it's a way to kind of create your brand and who you are and, and to be different. I mean, you know, one of the biggest issues I see in M the coverage of MMA is there's not a lot of original content out there. There's a lot of websites that just live off. What does MMA junkie report? What is MMA fighting report? You know, and, and I understand that you, know, yes, it's going to get clicks, but ultimately you, you got to come up with original content and, and it truly amazes me how many sites out there have, you know, when you look on their website, less than 10% of their content's original content, which is just, well, is, is baffling to me. Well, feature driven pieces have all but be become extinct in MMA and there's just a lack of storytelling. It's basically, you know, fight announcements and fight results. And what did Dana White say? What did Conor McGregor say? And that's really all it is now. It's, it's, you know, the, the way the sport is, is covered it's changed just in the last five to seven years. When I had five ounces of pain.com, there was a lot of storytelling going on. People were enamored with the lifestyle of the fighter and they wanted to kind of get behind the scenes and find out what made the fighters tick. And you, know, I, you just don't see that anymore. Everybody is the same. Everybody's bland. Everyone is just generic. And it, it's a shame. But I want to go back to the UFC, go back to IMG, WME, and you know the next TV deal. If there's only one suitor, look, the UFC is going to get a bump. They'll get maybe 150, 175 yeah. million from Fox just as a single suitor. But that's not what WME IMG got into the business for. They didn't buy. They didn't spend four plus billion to get a 150 to 175 million dollar year rights fee deal. They had big visions of a 300 to 400 million dollar deal, and you cannot get that without a bidding war. And I want to go back to my point with pay-per-view numbers dwindling, going down, a, a new baseline being established that's much lower than what it's been in the past, and potentially a rights fee deal, which is not going to be commensurate with the amount of money that WME IMG invested to acquire to the UFC. It wouldn't surprise me, Jason, if three to four years from now, the ownership of the UFC changed hands again. I'm not saying that's likely, but if things don't, if, th if things continue to head in the direction that they're heading in, 
that might be their only option. Yeah, and, and related to kind of what's going on there with the TV deal, we got this uh, question uh, from at Troy McCourt944 on Twitter saying, is it time for the UFC to go the WWE Network route? Those expensive pay-per-views for less than stellar cards have hardcore fans like me turning out. Um, and this is kind of interesting, and we were kind of discussing this, is you know one of the, the interesting announcements actually came last Friday is the fact of coming uh, starting on Tuesdays on July 11th, they are going to have live programming on UFC Fight Pass. It's going to be, uh, I think it's called Dana White's Look Contender Fight Series or something along those lines. But it's going to be five live fights every Tuesday night starting July 11th from the tough gym of basically just prospects uh, fighting each other, which uh, as someone who has Fight Pass, I think it's great because it actually gives me a reason to go on to Fight Pass um, for live programming because, honestly, there is hardly any. I, I, there, you know, outside of the you know the Fight Pass prelims, there, there is hardly any live programming. And, honestly, there's not much that really drives me to UFC Fight Pass. Um, it just isn't. Um, the only time that I really go on there, um, you know, maybe I watch a, a regional card that's on there, um, which I, I will tell you this, I am – fairly surprised the ufc is okay with having amateur fights on their network i was a little surprised by that um which is going to be uh xfn down in south florida as they've uh they've teamed up with titan fc um i i does that surprise you sam that the ufc would have amateur fights on their network yes because i don't from what i understood dana white and the fertitas were not big fans of amateur mma a lot of people feel like amateur sports is exploitation and you have, you know, amateur fighters that sell a lot of tickets. I mean, I mean, that's they're the ones that drive ticket sales. You know, amateur MMA on the marquee is not what sells tickets. No one go- wakes up and says, "Man, I, you know, I really want to see MMA this weekend." Where's the Where's the nearest local amateur MMA show? No, the, the people that buy tickets, they, it's their brother, their sister, their uncle, their their aunt, you know, their mother, their father, their best friend, whatever. They're competing and they want to be there to support their relative or friend so they spend 20 30 40 50 bucks to go it's like a tax it's like well i you know i want to be there to support my friend so they don't think that i'm a piece of garbage and i'm a bad friend or a bad relative so yep here's my 50 bucks i'm gonna pay and i'm gonna go watch and the promoter collects that money and you know it it, it is what it is it's it's a it's a stage and it's a venue for fighters to get experience but it's the fighters that are driving the ticket sales and now you have Titan, which is presumably getting money from the UFC, and they have a workforce on their undercard that isn't being compensated. It's it's it's, you know, look, amateur MMA needs to exist for fighters to get experience and and move up the ranks, but it really has no business being associated with the UFC. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just surprising to me. I mean, um, you know. Look, I think FS1 is going to pay, um, you know, to keep the UFC, but they're they're not going to get the three hundred, four hundred million they wanted, unless unless you know a surprise player pops up, and you know who though who I you know I mean maybe we can't discount. ESPN. It's speculation on my part that I don't think they're going to be involved in the bidding. I think that there has to be a pullback on the rights fees that they're paying to the major sports leagues and and getting in bed with the UFC is not a pullback. That's an increase on your position. 
Maybe you do it, though, because you want to basically, you know, cripple FS1. If they don't have the UFC, they're in big trouble. But, you know, in the money that you spend to, to, to get the UFC, does that allow one of the other big prestigious packages that you have? Do you not have enough money to retain one of those? Does that fall through the cracks? And does that make it onto FS1? I don't know. I, I just, you know, it's it's really hard to say. But if I was a betting man, I would bet against ESPN going after after the, the UFC. I just don't see them paying getting in, I don't see them getting involved in a bidding war for the UFC. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, don't see it either. Uh, you know, also some other uh, other topics want to uh, bring up here. Uh, Anderson Silva. Um, he's uh, I guess he's just in, in the growing list of fighters who, who want to have a, a verbal uh, match with, with Dana White, which, uh, you know, First off, you know, sorry, Anderson, you should not be in an interim title fight at the, at the end of the day. <laughs> um, but then, you know, it kind of comes into, you know, every anyone who's ever worked for an MMA promotion, you get these just weird requests. What, what's the biggest what's the weirdest uh, request you've ever gotten? I wouldn't say weirdest per se. I'll go with the most, you know, irrational and over the top number three i'll put quentin rampage jackson when he signed with bellator not only did we have to pay quentin jackson a lot of money but we had to sign like five to seven of his training partners and buddies and at one point it got so bad where we were just basically doing what i mean it was like quentin jackson was a matchmaker we had to sign uh well he didn't this guy didn't actually end up fighting for us but it was a buddy that Quentin trained with in California. We were doing show in Mohegan. It was the Rampage Jackson, um, Mola Wall, and both were in the 205 semifinals, and they kind of had that crazy yeah. uh, pull-apart thing in the cage. On that show, Rampage wanted us to book a friend of his who was a heavyweight, a guy that really should be competing at middleweight, who was 5-8. and eight. And we had to sign him to a, this guy to a contract. Uh, we had to pay him more than what you would pay a first time fighter fighting on your undercard. And we had to, you know, make arrangements to fly him and, and his corner people out. And that was just crazy to fly a guy that was five and eight, that wasn't going to sell a single ticket or draw in a single rating on the undercard of a Mohegan sun show to have to fly that guy all the way across country. I guess cooler heads prevailed. And this guy realized, I guess that he wasn't, wasn't ready for a fight at that level and pulled out of the fight. So we got out of that. So that was that's number three. There was a lot of contenders, and I could go on and on. I will go to number two, Paul Daly. We signed Paul Daly. We gave him a nice signing bonus. We gave him a non-tournament fight that he you know really wanted because he hadn't fought in a while and wanted to kind of get his feet wet again and, and get ready for the tournament, and we paid for that fight as well. Then Paul Daly got himself in trouble. He got into a skirmish on the street. He had one version of how events went down. According to him, he was a hero in that situation. When we got the police reports back from our attorneys and we actually read them, it portrayed a completely opposite picture. Regardless of the situation, it was bad judgment on the part of Paul Daly to get himself involved in that situation leading up to a uh, big tournament run, potential tournament run for himself. He, due to that arrest over in the UK, he was going to lose his passport privileges potentially, and it was going to be a check mark on his 
overall record, and it was going to make it almost impossible for him to get cleared for a visa and come over. So we were without the services of Paul Daly while he was under contract. It was an awkward situation. He wanted to fight. We had nowhere we could fight him. We weren't doing shows in the UK at that point. We were only doing shows in America and Canada, and Paul Daly couldn't get into either country at that point. So Paul Daly's big idea and his big demand was, why don't you guys pay for my legal fees? And we were like, what? Paul, it was your decision to get involved in that situation. Not only did Paul make that request, he was upset when we said, no, we're not going to pay for your legal fees. We just gave you a signing bonus. We gave you a non-tournament fight where you made good money. You know what? No way. Sorry, Paul. We're, we, we, we don't feel like we have to pay for your legal fees. And Paul, next thing you know, went to Twitter and social media and we were scum of the earth. We were horrible people to deal with all because we wouldn't pay for his legal fees for a decision that he had made on his own outside the confines of a Bellator cage. Number one. The number one crazy, irrational thing that I had to deal with. I'm not going to name this fighter by name because, you know, he's doing really well in a new career. I don't think he's a bad guy. I think that, you know, looking back and then at things and then seeing some of the things that have come out, you know, I, I think it was a situation where he was a guy that could fight, that was good at fighting, that just didn't want to be in the cage at all and probably had anxiety and a lot of issues and felt the weight of the world on his shoulders and just wasn't able to maybe go through the pressures and rigors of, of fighting professionally in MMA. This fighter was a guy that we not only gave a signing bonus to, we had to pay money to get him out of his contract. And I'm also keeping his name because I'm not looking to get into a public feud with the guy and call the guy out. I'm just, it's an interesting story. So we paid him a signing bonus. We paid to get him out of a contract with another organization. He was all set to compete in our tournament about a week or two before he was supposed to fight. He indicated that he was injured. He said it you know, wasn't a serious enough injury where he could send us medical records, uh, but that you know, he wasn't able to train, and as such, he did not feel comfortable competing in the tournament and was out. So I got that call, oh, maybe about a week before the tournament was supposed to begin. I don't know if he was supposed to compete a week later, but was probably supposed to compete two weeks later, right before our season started. And I was in scramble mode. I had to find someone to replace one of our biggest names in that tournament at the time. And, you know, that wasn't going to be easy to do on short notice. So I put my attention to that. Get a call from his this fighter's manager the next day. Hey, Sam, so-and-so wants to know when his next fight is. And I, I did a double take. I was like, what? Yeah, you know, he's real worried about how he's going to pay his bills. He needs to know when he's going to fight. I'm like, excuse me, he just pulled out of the tournament, $100,000 tournament yesterday because he was injured and can't train and, and can't compete. Let's maybe wait a little bit until we get into his recovery and see how he's going before he's scheduled to fight. Because a lot of fighters, they get injured, and the next thing they want to know is when they're going to fight because they need a paycheck even though they're not able to fight. And the last thing I want to do is schedule a guy and bring in another opponent for him and bring another fighter into the situation where they're scheduled to fight a guy that has less than a 50% chance of making that fight. It's not fair to the other fighter. It's not fair to the promotion. It's not fair to the fans. It's just bad business. It doesn't make sense. So I, you know, I like wanted to like curse and yell at this manager and say, are you effing kidding me? But I <laughs> maintained my composure. I said, look, let's take a step back here. Let's let him get into, you know, his rehab. Let's maybe have him go to a doctor. You know, let's see where we are maybe two to three weeks from now before we start talking about his next fight. 
manager said, okay, that makes sense. You know, I, I appreciate you taking the call. I appreciate that. That seems very reasonable. I thought, okay, great. You know, he, he's, you know, listening to me. I guess once he got off the phone with me, when he relay, relayed that to his client, I guess he didn't have great client control. His client got anxious or got uppity and, 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 and pressured his manager to come back with, with a definitive answer. So I get another call a couple hours later and he goes, Sam, we need to know when we're going to fight. And I'm like, look, I'm too busy to finding his replacement for this tournament to even think about his next fight. Give me a few days, give me a week or two, and I will get back to you guys. Next thing you know, this fighter announces his retirement on social media, criticizes Bellator, you know, calls us the biggest pieces of trash on the earth. We're bad human beings. We don't care about him and his family and about, you know, his ability to earn a living and take care of his family. It's like, dude, you picked the wrong profession if you wanted steady income. You don't get paid unless you fight, unless we gave you a signing bonus, which we did. So it was just bizarre having a guy demand a fight 24 hours later after pulling out of a tournament. That was strange. Whenever you have a fighter telling you he's injured, can't fight, and then demanding you schedule him for a fight, it's just bizarre. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's crazy. And that's the kind of stuff that Dana White has to deal with, but on a much bigger level. You've got Anderson Silva demanding an interim title fight. That's I love Anderson Silva, one of my favorite fighters of all time, perhaps the greatest fighter of all time. You know, I've got him one in 1A with Fedor Emelianenko. But for him to come out and make such a ludicrous, irrational demand, it's just crazy. And he doesn't need to be fighting Gil Romero. And if you're Anderson Silva, when you've held the middleweight title and had such a dominant title reign, are you telling me that the interim title means anything to you? Why does Anderson Silva care about an interim title? I don't, it's uh, it's amazing. I, I don't. And then I guess apparently he he mentioned something down in Brazil about how fans should not go to UFC 212, which uh, to the UFC's credit. Before he had spoken out, they offered refunds, you know, since they had promoted Anderson Silva was going to be on the card. So I, I give the UFC credit for that um, because they, they didn't have to. You know, they could sit there and say, hey, you, he wasn't the main event. He was a co-main event. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, – and, of course, now we're going to get Yoel Romero Michael Bisping, which I like to call um, Yoel Romero is your new UFC middleweight champion. <laughs> That's why they fight the fights, Jason. Come on. But First yeah, off, no, that's... okay, go find me the person that's picking Michael Bisping uh, to beat Yoel Romero. What do we know what happened with the GSP Bisping fight? I mean, well, obviously we know the fight's off, but what what really happened? Well, GSP doesn't want it. he told Michael Bisping name a date after October. And <laughs> the UFC thought it was going to be July 8th. And uh, you know, so you know, all signs kind of point. GSP wants to fight in November at Madison Square Garden. That's going to be the November pay per view. Um, but uh, you know, they're not going to they're not going to sit there and wait that long. And uh, pro- probably not the news Michael Bisping wanted to hear. No, because I mean, look, a, a fight against GSP is a, a big money fight for him. Fight yeah, against I mean, Romero probably, is not right. And then the GSP fight—that's probably the equivalent to two to three paydays for for Michael Bisping because you're going to get a. Uh, points on that pay-per-view and that's going to be you know perhaps would have been the biggest pay-per-view of the year for the UFC you know and of course that whole situation got you know Luke Rockhold and uh, other middleweights talk and we actually got a question uh, from at Joe Daddy 85 with saying with so many fighters coming out Dan publicly any chance he's not making the one making the decision anymore you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier but it's just there's some things that Dana just says that just literally I just shake my head with like Dana do you really expect us to believe that 
it's not the first time a fighter has gone after Dana White publicly. Look at the Tito Ortiz, Dana White feud, and there have been other examples pre-WME, IMG. But it just seems like the frequency in which fighters are going after Dana White and then just the vitriol that's, you know, being used. You look at Ally Aquinta and some of the things that he has said, and you look at the, some of the stuff that Luke Rockholt said, and I don't think, you know, two years ago, they go after Dana White like that because I think they they would have you know they they knew Dana White as a much more powerful figure back then than possibly he is now and I think a lot of fighters aren't as afraid of the consequences now. By the way, speaking of uh, Tito Ortiz, Tito Ortiz Chuck Liddell odds it happens in a Bellator cage in 2017. I don't know about Tito Ortiz Chuck Liddell, but I would say that there's better fifty better than fifty percent odds that Chuck Liddell competes in the Bellator cage next year. I think you could say Matt Hughes as well. I, and, you know, I, I, and I, I got I to gotta be honest. You know, well, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know your position on this, Jason, but I assume I'm going to be preaching to the choir on this. That, 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 that idea that Chuck Liddell would be allowed to come back, that Bellator would facilitate that, it just doesn't sit right with it. I get a real I, uneasy I, feeling. I would hope there's somebody around Chuck Waddell that would talk sense into him. And, and, and also, how can you sit there after how his career ended? How can you be Viacom and Bellator and want to see him fight again from a fighter safety perspective? And I use this on my podcast recently. Bellator cannot be enablers of older fighters who want to continue fighting. The reality is with Chuck Liddell, he was paid not to fight any longer. Dana Mm -hmm. White, a true real life friend to Chuck Liddell, even though from a promotional standpoint, it was in Dana White's best interest to continue to have Chuck Liddell continue to fight so they could continue to make money off of him. He was so concerned. He was concerned enough said, Hey, you know, you're not going to fight anymore. And you know, if money is the issue, then we're just going to pay you not to fight. And that's exactly what they did. And they did it up until the Fertitas sold the UFC. And had the Fertitas not sold the UFC, Chuck Liddell would still be getting paid by Dana White and the Fertitta brothers. The only reason why they stopped doing that is because the Fertitas, you know, it had nothing to do with Chuck Liddell. It had to do with the fact that the ownership changed. And if the current ownership would have remained, Chuck Liddell likely would have been paid for life not to fight. Same thing with Matt Hughes. And just because these guys aren't making money anymore – and they're coming to you, calling you, and trying to maybe potentially politic and campaign for a fight in your cage doesn't mean, like you just said, Jason, that you should enable it and allow it to happen because bad things can happen in the cage when you have guys in there that are not the right age and are not 100% healthy and, and, and shouldn't be fighting. We, we saw that with Dada 5000. You know, the, Bellator dodged a major bullet with Ken Shamrock, you know, having a 50-plus-year-old man, you know, compete in their cage, you know – when I was writing for five ounces of pain, when I was running that site, people might, you know, remember I wrote an article about how I wanted to see, you know, legends MMA, but having been more involved in the sport and seeing more things from behind the scenes over the years, you know, that was one of the dumbest articles I've ever written. You know, just because you have two old guys going head to head, doesn't make it any safer. It it still presents a lot of great deal of danger because, you know, people at that age shouldn't be partaking in an activity as violent as MMA. Well, I think their problem with that is the jurisdictions those fights happened in, too. That they are um, 
they're not held in high regards, I guess you would say. Who's um, that? You know, the, you know, Missouri and Texas. Yeah, yeah, the way the way people, not just fans, perceive them, but also, um, you know, the way fans perceive them. Um, you know, when you when you, one of the things that ultimately rubs me such the wrong way when it comes to the state of Missouri is when you have fighters in a title fight both tell me they were not drug tested for the event. And then the commission gives me a no comment. I, I just, and, and by the way, and, and Missouri is not going to put in the new rules of MMA. They are one of these States that, and it, it's a, it's an ego thing. Let's just call yeah. it what it is. It's an ego thing. Um, it, Texas is going to implement the new rules, but you know, and this is where in, in MMA, it can't be like in the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, where, you know, they put these new rules in every year, you know, it, it, because it, it's a it's a long process to change them in each state. Um, and it, it all, I get the sense that I think the UFC is going to stop going to states that don't adopt the new unified rules of MMA. And, of course, you know, we, we saw the issues back with, with Weidman and Musasi. And then, of course, we saw it this past weekend with Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, uh, you know, Herb Dean offering his explanation of it. I thought the, the interesting part of Herb Dean – explanation about it was the fact that he, he was talking about a ground fighter with the supporting weight and i will tell you this uh we're recording this on, on tuesday may the 16th i talked to mike mazuli the head of the abc earlier today when it comes to regulatory things he's 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 my first phone call and uh he, he said he goes jason you can quote me on it if i if i was overseeing that case it's getting overturned to a disqualification yeah, I mean that 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 last knee was completely egregious, and that to me should have been a disqualification. You know, it was it, calling it unintentional. I mean, if you want to see it from the fighter's perspective, you could say, yeah, he got caught up in the moment and didn't really 100% know what he was doing. It was more instinctive than anything else because a fight's a fight to certain fighters, you know. And as much as as I like Eddie Alvarez and as big of a fan of as I am, and you know, maybe he, it wasn't with as much malicious intent that some people think. It still was egregious. It still happened. It's still a disqualification or should be a disqual- disqualification. Well, and I think the other people, the other issue part of that that people have kind of concerning is the fact of when Herb goes out of the cage to kind of explain what he's doing, he's talking to Mark Ratner. He's not talking to uh, you know, a representative of the Texas Athletic Commission. Now, look, yeah. Mark Ratner is, is the god of of executive directors, of course, but now he works for the UFC and Herb's explanation was the fact of, you know, he didn't see the Texas commission that, you know, Mark was there. And of course we all heard that conversation because Herb just happened to be mic'd up. Uh, so, we, you know, to me, I think that's another reason people kind of are sitting back and going, come on, man, what, what's going on here? Um, and we got this question uh, from Tim Frontkick on Twitter. It says, how about using replay to get fouls or non-fouls corrected? Being corrected means better than guessing. And, you know, this is something that Dana White brought up at the post-fight press conference that Lorenzo Fertitta texted him after this incident and said, this is a prime example of why we need instant replay in this sport. It's not as easy to implement as some people might think. Just the flow of a fight is different than the flow of a game in, you know, the NHL, Major League Baseball, hockey, or the NFL. You can't just stop a fight mid-round and and go to the tape. And you can't necessarily review footage between rounds because the fighter should only have 60 seconds. 
And if you go beyond that 60 second time frame to review and make a decision, you know, someone could be getting an advantage by extending the, the time between rounds. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think that replay should only be used to rule on the conclusion of a fight. I think it just logistically, it doesn't make sense to use it during the course of the actual fight. It should only be used once the fight has been completely stopped to rule on the deciding outcome, whether or not it was a foul or not. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I think that it'll be interesting because I am planning on going up to the ABC uh, meeting this year, which is uh, in late July at Mohegan, and I think this is going to be uh, a topic. Um, I do not have any inside information on this, but I think that the recent uh, actions of referee Mike England um, in, in terms of things that have happened in Victa, things that obviously happened at the UFC show where um, – Nathan Coy is uh, sleeping in a chokehold. And uh, he also was involved in a situation um, two weeks ago at a KC Fighting Alliance where, um, you know, he, he had another issue with this, which I, I have not had this confirmed. And if this is true, I can't believe this. Mike England apparently is is uh, teaching a referee seminar here in the state of Florida soon. Um <laughs> What? Oh, Has yeah, anyone heard, signed up for it? Heard but, that today. I, I've been searching online for this me. Uh, today, uh, and I can't find it, but I heard it from a very good source that this is going down. I can't believe that. That's a that's a meme. That once somebody finds a, a flyer or a poster for that, that is a meme I'm waiting to happen. Oh, yeah, can't, can't wait to see that. Um, I think that's going to be, I think, another point of emphasis at the ABC meeting this year is going to be what happened on Tuesday. Uh, in uh, with the California State Athletic Commission, where they passed their ten point plan uh, in terms of uh, you know eliminating massive weight cutting, which I ultimately think we're going to see a lot of fighters all of a sudden say they don't want to fight UFC two fourteen anymore. Um, I think it's not hard to probably figure out who some of those fighters might be because they're not going to fit in the uh, walking around um, weight in terms of that. You can actually go to MMAfighting dot com to see that. Um, but th this year's ABC meeting is, is going to be very interesting because I think a lot of things are going to come out of it. And I'm also, I'm, I'm interested to see who comes from the state of New Jersey. That'll be very interesting to me. <laughs> Does Larry Hazard show up? That'll be interesting since yeah. he, he was a uh, vocal after, uh, UFC, uh, 208. Was that, I doubt, was that the Weidman or was that 210? I doubt Nick Lumbo shows up. Nick Limbo showed up last year, and and for for the commissions that were against the the new unified rules, Nick Limbo is the only one who spoke up. The rest of them didn't speak up. So, and and there were states that that did not show up to the ABC meeting last year, and uh, those are states that uh, I would uh, best way to describe them is they're in support of this new. Um, you know, national regulatory committee, which really hasn't gotten any any push it's at a, all, and has no. It's a renegade. Zero, it's a renegade commission, and, and it has it's zero called, buzz. Call it, it's, it's called what it is. Yeah, it has absolutely uh, zero buzz. So, uh, do do you like what what California's doing with the weight cutting? Some things, yes. Yeah, some things, no. But at least they're doing something. Now, I may not agree with everything that they're trying to implement. I still think there might be some better ideas out there that haven't been taken into consideration for their 10 point plan, but at least they're doing something, Jason, because there's so many commissions that haven't done anything. And, you know, you, you hear from people, well, no one's died yet. Well, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, be concerned about the, the safety aspect of it. Cause even if someone doesn't die from an extreme weight cut, goodness knows what 
they're doing to their body and how it could be taking years off their life, you know, at the end of their life. Just, uh, you know, it, it's good to see that there's at least a few commissions still out there that care about the safety of the, and well-being of the fighters and not about placating their own ego. Uh, another uh, couple of quick little topics we want to mention here before we get out of here on this episode of the Insiders Podcast. Uh, you brought this uh, article to my attention, an article that was uh, appeared recently on BloodyElbow.com that was titled Where UFC Connected Money Went to in U.S. Politics in 2016. Uh, a lot of money going to the Republican Party. But also the Democrats, the Democrats as well in certain instances, much more going to the Republican side. This article raised my ire, just like the, 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 the new headquarters raised my ire. A lot of money just being funneled to corrupt politicians in many cases from the UFC and their ownership. This money could all be going to the fighters, you know, and what what the Fertitas and the UFC, you know, did in getting money to these politicians, it's nothing illegal. I think what they're doing, what they've done and have and are probably going to continue to do should be illegal, not just for the UFC, but for all companies, you know, nationwide. It just, you know, corporations shouldn't be allowed to have as much power and control over the democratic democratic process as they have. And yeah, there are caps with regards to how much someone can donate to a campaign, but there's ways around that. There are ways to exploit the, the, the protections. And it looks like the Fertitas have done that because they have a lot of employees that contributed to campaigns as well. And the involvement of several political action committees, you know, it, it, it's no secret, you know, having gone through, you know, political science in college, you know, when these employees, when you have see when you see a company, and they have so many employees contributing to these campaigns. What's 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 done behind the scenes is they're given a bonus. So, in order to get more money into the hands of the politicians, because a a wealthy business owner can only legally donate so much in their own name, they give all of their employees or most of them bonuses with the expectation and the agreement that a large portion of that bonus will be donated to a campaign of the owner's choice. And the employee gets to pocket a little bit of the money that was transferred to them. You know, it, it's perfectly legal. So what the Fertitas have, did in the past, they did not violate any laws, but it shouldn't be allowed. It shouldn't be legal. And for a business to, 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 to use money for to, to, to line the pockets of corrupt politicians, when you've got grown men and women in your cage, you know, Bleeding, sweating, crying, you know, to support and increase your bottom line. And there's money just being given to these politicians, being used to create these decadent and overindulgent corporate offices when you could be taking care of your workforce much in a much better fashion. It's just it's a crime. It's 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 wrong. And, you know, I had to speak up and say something. I'm sure, that, you know, if the UFC listens to what I'm saying, they're going to be upset and they're going to say it's not fair, blah, blah, blah. Just take better care of your fighters. Stop worrying about corporate offices. You don't you're not Google. You don't need to be Google and you don't need to 
exert your political influence the way you have on politicians just because it's legal and you're not doing anything wrong doesn't mean you should be doing it because from a moral perspective i have a huge issue it's a form of bribery it's legal bribery and you know the ufc shouldn't be singled out corporations are doing it every day it's such a corrupt system well and that's why i've always said i think you know as long as donald trump is is the president of the united states that the ali act's going to have a, a big issue getting through Right, and the, uh, to me, the Ali Act, you know, you've got some really concerned people that have brought forth, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but what I do think should happen is that, in a, and it's very idealistic on my part, yes, I, I understand that, and I know the system's corrupt, but to me, I, I think that the Ali Act should be debated and decided on its merits, not because... Ari Emanuel is one of the most politically connected players in Hollywood because his brother was Rama is is Rama Emanuel and is a former aide to Obama and has amazing and and Ari Emanuel himself has amazing ties to Donald Trump and can get a meeting with him anytime he wants. You know, it, it, that that shouldn't be the deciding factor to why this bill gets shot down. It should be decided and debated on its merits and that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunate, uh, but there I, I would say this: they are, they are getting uh, more and more people uh, on their side. Uh, get a couple questions in here before we get out of here. Uh, I think uh, Sam, you might have uh, talked about this last time we did a show together, but uh, at MMM Martin asks, uh, want to know what you think about uh, the Bellator NYC card. I think it's great. I'm excited for it, and quite frankly, Jason, I'm more excited about the direction of Bellator right now than I am about the UFC's direction. Interesting take. I, I, I look. I think uh, Bellator's card on 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 London this week uh, is. Uh, I, I like that fight card. It's got you know three very important matchups. Uh, obviously, the the Bellator debut of, of Roy McDonald. We'll see how he does. Uh, I'm sure people in Bellator and Viacom probably don't like the headline that's on MMAfighting.com right now, where Roy McDonald talking about he's making less money in sponsorship money. Uh, currently in Bellator than he did in the UFC. Uh, if you go deeper into the article, he mentions you know why he is taking this route of you know he's looking to build relationships with big sponsors. He, he's not looking to have you know eighty bazillion logos on on a on a banner. And uh, you know this is something also Benson Henderson has talked about, but definitely not the the type of headline that that Bellator wants out there. Well, Ryan Bader made the system work, which really goes to a point that I would like to make here: sponsorships now more than ever in MMA. You can't sell it as a good deal for companies. You can't sell it on the potential ROI because the potential ROI is terrible. It all comes down to relational selling that falls on the shoulders of your manager, who they know, who they can get in contact with, who trusts them, and who's willing to support them. You look at Ali Abdelaziz, you could say a lot of negative things about him, and some of them may be true. But the one thing that he's good at, he has the relationships. He is excellent at relational selling, and that's why so many fighters, despite all these negative headlines, that's why they sign with him because of the money. He can get the money. He can put money in their pockets because he has those relationships. And that is how sponsorship in MMA is sold in 2017 because it's not the hot commodity that it was in 2005. There aren't a ton of people that just want to be – Put money into the fighters of po- into uh, money into the, the pockets of fighters just so they can be close to a fighter. It and it's not the red hot thing that it was. So you're not necessarily using it for branding purposes. You're doing it because you get a phone call from someone that tells you it's a good deal and you trust them, so you give them money. 
Yeah. It's and, if, just, and if that guy's your manager, you're going to make the money. If you don't have a manager that can do that, you're not going to make any money. Yeah. I mean, you know, sponsorship game is not, a, I'll say this, you know, you know, Roy McDonald is, is one of these guys who has talked about, you know, in the UFC, everyone just looks like it, 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 the same person because they're wearing the same uniform. The only, you know, and, and I understand where Roy McDonald's coming from, but then my response to that would be is, well, how's that different than an NFL player? NBA player, they're all wearing the same uniform. It's a good point. I mean, I, I, that's that that would be the counter to that. I understand where he's coming from. I, I totally get where he's coming from, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if it turns around for him. Uh, the final thing we went in here on this podcast is about some news that came out late last week that Michael Chavello is exiting Access TV, and we got asked how we feel about this. Um, you know, look, I am in broadcasting. I've been broadcasting for a long time, been play-by-play broadcasting for a long time. Personally, I'm not a big I, I I'm not big on his over-the-top announcing. That's just me. I, I know there's a lot of people out there that that love uh, his over-the-top, but just uh, you know, not I'm not big on that. My interactions with Mike were few and far between, but the interactions that I have had with him have been nothing but positive. When he first came onto the scene, I thought he was way too over the top and I was not a fan at all. I feel like over the years, he's kind of refined his style a little bit. He still has that over the top style, but I like that. To me, you know, you're doing access TV. Some of the fights are big. Some of them are from South Dakota on a Friday night at 1 a.m. And if the announcer isn't excited, then why should I be excited? You know, I worked with Mike when I was part owner of Titan Fighting with Joe Kelly. I had a small minority ownership interest in that. And he uh, came out for um, Access TV. It might have been HDNet uh, then for the Tim Sylvia Abe Wagner fight. And, you know, seeing how Mike operated behind the scenes, already had respect for him before the fight, but seeing how passionate he was, how much he knew, how much research that he had done, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot, lot of commentators over the years, they would call me for fights that I had made either as a promoter or as a matchmaker, and they would pick my brain, try to get as much information from me as possible. And Mike really didn't come up to me and ask me any questions about the fighters and seeing him in his pre-interviews, watching him interview the fighters because I was a part owner. I could walk into any room, uh, you know, that I wanted to at that point, you know, seeing, you know, operate. He already knew everything there was to know about the guys. He came in extremely prepared and I love his, his fight calls, the passion. And, you know, as a guy that was part owner and uh, promoter of that, you know, Sylvia Wagner fight, that fight call to me was ep- epic. I mean, it was a, a dramatic conclusion and the call that Mike delivered was just, it made it that much better. And it was viewed a ton of times on YouTube as one of the most, you know, viewed clips for a non UFC fight ending in the history of MMA. So it was very cool to, to have a guy that was as passionate about my product uh, you know, as I was and, and to see that. So it, it's disappointing to see Mike leave. The, 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 the bigger issue that I want to talk about here, the point that I want to make to me in my mind, and I guess everyone has their own personal preference, but I think Mike Chavello, Sean Wheelock and Mauro Ronaldo are the three best play-by-play guys in MMA. I'm not going to, I have a specific order, but I'm not going to get into that order. I know all three guys, Mauro and Sean much better than I know Mike. I, you know, have had extensive interactions with both Mauro and Sean over the years. So I'm not going to give a personal top three, uh, rank them in order, but I'll just say that those that they're in my top three, those, that is my top three, those three guys, none of them are currently attached to a full-time mixed martial arts promotion 
that is North American based. And I think that is a crying shame when you've got the best talent from a broadcast perspective not involved in full-time MMA. I think it really speaks to ego in certain cases when it comes to production. If Mm -hmm. people really were passionate about the quality of their production, they would put BS aside and they would, these guys would be calling the fights. I'm not saying John Anik is not good. I like John Anik. He's good. I don't think he's better than Sean Wheelock, Mauro Ronaldo, Mike Chavello. Sean Grande, I think is a good sports broadcaster. I mean, the guy is legit. I just don't think from an MMA perspective that he is very good. Uh, when he made his debut, he was I thought he had a lot to work on, and I thought he would improve over time. I don't feel that's happened. In certain cases, I feel like he's taken steps back from his debut. So you have Morrow, you have Sean, and you have Mike Chavello now all on the sidelines, and MMA is not better off for it. We need these guys attached to the major promotions. They've got to be involved. I would love to see Morrow start calling UFC fights. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not saying I want to see John Anik lose his job. God knows the UFC does over 50 fights a year. Let's get Morrow on some of the bigger pay-per-views and give John Anik a break. You know, John Anik can't do it by himself. There needs to be someone in there. And I don't think – I think Todd Grisham's a lot better in a desk position than he is in a play-by-play okay. position. So let's okay. get Morrow in there. Let's get Mike Chavello. You know, let's see Mike Chavello on Bellator. You know, let's 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 get Sean. You know, Sean Grande. You know, I, I don't want to advocate for someone to lose his job, but he's got plenty of employment to fall back on. He's not going to be hurting if he loses the Bellator gig. You know, and I think the Bellator product would be the from a production perspective would be much better with Mike Chavello. And then you know, let's get Sean Wheelock. If Mike Chavello's leaving Access TV, why not get Sean Wheelock in there? This is the one thing that you know. I've never talked to Michael Chavello, so I'm not going to act like I know him. But he's a real, real nice guy behind the scenes. The, the one thing, but I will tell you this: there's some people I've talked to that maybe don't have necessarily great things to say about him. But you know, one thing that rubbed me the wrong way was, was a story that came out last year uh, from Mark De La Rosa, who was supposed to fight uh, at, at Legacy FC 51, where issue with you know opponent missed weight. It, it was a main event. It was a title fight. He wasn't the champion. Champion missing weight, and this quote that you know Michael Schvel gave MMA Junkie Radio about that situation, where um, he he said, "Give me his number, I'll give him a call." Meaning Del Rosa, he goes, "I left the message saying, hey, Mark, it's Michael Chavello. I don't know what you got in your head, and you think something shady happened with the weigh-ins, but Pat and I, and Ron Cruck, we're all here. We saw Ocho weigh in, come in and fight. Don't do this, man. You're the main event on national television. You're seven zero, not some bum who." Is who hasn't got a chance. You're going to commit career suicide if you don't fight. You do understand that. You're committing career suicide by not being the main event on TV, and you're screwing over Access TV, you're screwing over your fans, you're screwing over Legacy FC, which carries over to Legacy Fighting Alliance next year. And Mick Maynard is now the matchmaker for the UFC, so you're screwing over any chance you have of that guy that's going to get you into UFC in the future getting you in there i'm telling you take the fight he, he had other things to say my problem with that is a television announcer should never be getting involved in whether a fighter's going to fight right that's, i mean that's that's great advice shouldn't be coming from the play-by-play announcer no it should not be coming by play-by-play announcer and i'll tell you and this is this goes access tv i it just i i can't i it makes me cringe every time i hear them do this where they are trying to to do 
co-promotion events with their promotions that are on their channel, which from a television aspect, I get. But don't tell, sit there and say that's what's best for the fighters. You want the fighters to take a UFC slash Bellator level fight for regional pay. And I've talked to several managers about this, and they've sat there goes, I would never let my client take that kind of fight. Because why, yeah, but, why, why take, why take a, a UFC level fight for regional pay? Yeah, but sometimes you need a, a big win to, to propel yourself and get into the big show. Yeah, but I mean, if you're talking about you may only making three or four thousand dollars as opposed to a guaranteed ten thousand, hmm. no guarantee you're going to get that UFC pay. No, there's you don't no guarantee. Take the big fights. But it's you know, and plus for some of these regional promotions, um, you know, like let's say you're CES. If CES was going to do that, if I'm CES, I'm saying okay, you're coming to Lincoln, Rhode Island to do the event because it doesn't make sense for CES to go to somewhere else. Yeah, but if you're Access TV, you're in the TV business. You've got to do things that draw get attention for your fight cards and that'll draw ratings. Well, they're not even a Nielsen rated station. That's the other thing that, that hurts them. So no, you, you got you, 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 you at least got to get people that that want to tune into your, your fights. Otherwise, you're going to get dropped by every cable station known to man. Oh, yeah. Look, it's uh, you know, I mean, look, Friday night's a perfect example. I mean, you know, they're they're battling against a tape delayed Bellator show, you know, headlined by Rory and Paul. And, you know, you also uh, you've, you've got the Titan card that that's on UFC fight pass. Uh, and there's a, a couple other events going on Friday as well. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of competition out there. You know, there's, there's a ton of competition. There's a lot of competition, but there needs to be a concerted effort to elevate the level of play by play talent at the national mixed martial arts level here in North America, because it's, it's not the best that the networks could be offering. No. And uh, I will tell you this as someone who just made his MMA play-by-play debut, there's not a lot of opportunities out there. There's not, there's just, there's not a lot of opportunities, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, and not necessarily a ton of money out there either. That, that's no. the other aspect. Uh, no. And I there guess is. when you work on an NFL team broadcast and <laughs> sometimes you get some of these offers, you're like, Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yep. You know, but that that's just the reality. But Sam, it was uh, it was great chatting MMA with you to offer uh, your new, unique insight. Of course, everyone can always uh, follow you out on Twitter. Any, anything else you want to uh, talk about before we get out of here? No, just follow me on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA Kaplan with a C C A P L A N. Who knows? Maybe you have some uh, some hot take on the Seventy uh, Sixers lottery pick, which. Well, as we tape, will be taking place any second, so I'm not going to uh, talk too much about it because when everyone listens to it, it will already be done. Praying for one and four, though. Number one <laughs> and number four. Let's make it happen. As a Magic fan, I'm I, you know, interested with the Magic. I also have to be interested in the Lakers because that affects also uh, some future picks for the Magic. So uh, looking for that. Of course, you can always follow me on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. You can, follow the, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn Radio and Google Play. Just search the MMA Insiders. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you are interested in being an advertiser on this podcast, just shoot me an email, Jason at RadioInfluence.com, and I'll get you over the rates for this podcast. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the MMA Insiders podcast, which you always hear on RadioInfluence.com. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. Here is Kevin Kennedy and Rich Herrera with an Inside the Dugout Quick Fix.
Red Adams was a longtime Dodger pitching coach. In fact, he just passed away himself, I think, about a year ago. My very first year as being a minor league catching instructor, he had a dinner in, in um, Florida. It was called Extended Spring Training, which we used to have in uh, the Tampa-St. Pete area. And Red was there as a roving pitching guy. He had retired from being a major league pitching coach, but he was still part of the organization. He hosted the dinner for myself, uh, my girlfriend, which later became my wife. Um, I remember Tommy Byers, who's with the Cubs now as a hitting instructor for so many years. His wife was there. Joe Alvarez and his wife was there. Joe was the manager at the time. And these names, some people may remember, some may not. But anyway, there was eight of us at the table. And, and when we got to the restaurant, it was a nice restaurant, a steak, steakhouse. And Red said, uh, number one rule, you can't sit by anybody that you know. In other words, you can't sit by your <laughs> significant other. You can't sit by your wife or girlfriend. Really? Yeah. And I, that's where I learned it. That's where I learned about mixing up the clubhouse. And I, and I said, I said, wow, really? I can't sit by, you know, my, my fiance? He said, no, nobody can. And so what he did, he made me sit next to Joe Alvarez's wife. And then on the left, maybe it was Tommy Byer's wife. I never met either one of them. And next to him, uh, next to my wife, might have been my girlfriend might have been Joe Alvarez. And, and on the other side, it might have been Betty, Red Adams' wife. And, and she would have been next to uh, another in, instructor's uh, wife and, and, uh, and, and guy, uh, instructor that was there. So in other words, the whole table of eight or ten of us was all mixed up. And the reason he did that was obvious as we got talking because he wanted people talking to each other instead of just talking to their significant other as they were at this dinner. He didn't want everybody just to be whispering, you know, to the other right, and not, right. not talking to everybody else. He wanted what an amazing, to, well, how amazing. Yeah, you get the picture of what I'm saying, right? And so it became a party. It became like, wow, this is awesome. So by the time that dinner was over, two hours, two and a half hours later, Every, all eight people or 10 people, I can't remember if it was eight or 10, but they all knew each other. We all knew something about the other. And the next time we saw them, hey, good to see you, Debbie. Good to see you, Irene. Good to see you. You know what I mean? It was like family. Inside the Dugout with Kevin Kennedy and Rich Herrera can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.